And so this morning, I want to speak on the subject of being a courageous witness for Christ, a bold witness for Christ. Look, the only way to change a nation is to change the individuals within that nation. You change them one person at a time. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in a series of special messages that were delivered by Dr. Brogy over the past couple of years. And today, we will begin a new series that focuses on evangelizing. We are all aware that there are many aspects of a healthy church, but there is one dimension that is highlighted in the book of Acts chapter 4 because it speaks of believers who were passionate about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will see a snapshot of the church sharing their faith and meeting opposition. Today's sermon is entitled, A Courageous Witness. Please join us in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 1, as we begin. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 4. If you are here for the first time, you'll be interested to know that we finished, not long ago, a verse-by-verse exposition of the epistle of James. And we typically go from a New Testament book to an Old Testament book. And Lord willing, before the fall ends, we'll begin a line-by-line exposition of an Old Testament book. But I am here this morning to address some issues that God has burdened me with in these past weeks. We just finished a six-week study on morality and what God has to say about it. And this morning, I want to address the subject of evangelism. Now, some of you have told me when you came to this church that you were burned in the church that you came from. And yet, when you come to a passage like Acts chapter 4, you say, wow, this church was godly, this church was exciting, the presence of the Lord was obvious, He was at work. Well, Jesus promised, I will build my church, and He promised that the powers of death and hell could not prevail against it. And so, if God is building His church, I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of what He does. I don't want to be a part of some dead church that's filled with internal strife and fighting. I want to be a part of a New Testament Bible-believing church that God is using and working and moving through. I want to be a part of a healthy church. There are many aspects of a healthy church, but certainly there is one dimension that is highlighted here in the fourth chapter. These are people who were passionate about sharing the gospel. So for the next few weeks, we'll be speaking of this today, courageously witnessing for Christ, next time consistently witnessing for Christ. And so what we find in Acts 4 is a snapshot of the church sharing their faith and in the process meeting opposition. Now, God knows my heart. It has never been my goal to take good people out of Bible-believing, Christ-centered churches where the pastor knows and loves Christ and to bring them here. I want to win first and foremost the loss to Christ. And by God's grace, most of the people who join, the majority is always by conversion. I want to help people, good people, save people who are in bad churches to get out. If they're in a church where the pastor does not believe in the infallibility and the inerrancy of Scripture, they need to get out and be with the people of God. And I certainly want to help new people into the community to find a good, healthy, Bible-believing church, and we're one of many. And so this morning, I want us to be prepared in this process of bringing people into the kingdom. But I want to say that if you do it, you're going to meet hostility more and more in the day that we live in. 
Listen to what Jesus said in John 3.19. He said, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Men loved the darkness. The word love, agapao, it's the same word that's used in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. It refers to a willful choosing kind of love. Just as God chose to give his son and the Lord Jesus chose to leave heaven to take on our humanity. And the spirit of God was involved in that process as he overshadowed Mary's womb and took the eternal deity of Christ and brought together with it perfect sinless humanity. As they chose to do that, some people choose willfully to love sin rather than to love God. And of course, as we approach the end of the age, God promises that the world will not get better, it will get worse. Listen to what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse. Because lawlessness is increased. 1 John 3, 4 says sin is lawlessness. You could say because sin is increased, most people's love will grow cold. So with the love of sin, we need to be prepared for more and more opposition. And I could read pages of opposition that is now coming upon evangelical Bible-believing Christians, not the liberal mainline denominations that no longer believe Scripture. But those who adhere to the Word of God, there is a growing opposition. And the government says, yes, we want you to have freedom of religion, and by that they mean within the four walls of your church. And so this morning I want to speak on the subject of being a courageous witness for Christ, a bold witness for Christ. Look, the only way to change a nation is to change the individuals within that nation. You change them one person at a time. Now, whether God will bring a revival, only He knows. Because we are told in Scripture there will come a point in God's plan for the ages when there will be no revival. Sin will only increase. In fact, there is one promised future revival, and it's after the church is removed, and it's during the Great Tribulation period, where an untold number of people who had never heard the gospel before in clarity and power will be converted. John describes in, in the Revelation, the seventh chapter. But as we approach the end of the age, there is going to be more and more hostility. Why? Because sin will grow, and men will love sin, and they will hate those who stand for truth. So this morning, I want to begin by reading our passage. I'm not going to read the entire text, but I want to begin in Acts chapter 4, verse 1, follow along. In fact, I will read the entire text. Acts 4, verse 1. I hope you brought a Bible. By the way, how many of you have a Bible? Hold it up so I can see it. Fantastic. I see a few people holding their phones. I'm assuming you've got the Bible on it, right? Okay. Turn it off, put it on airplane mode, do something, unless you're a doctor and you're going to be called out. Acts 4, beginning in verse 1, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, 
If we are in trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. I was thinking this week about our oldest son when he was five years old, and he had an eight-hour-long operation for a tumor that was in his leg. And as Audrey and I sat in the waiting room, every few hours a nurse would come out and bring us an update on how the surgery was going. And then finally, the doctor came out and said the operation was a complete success. Well, we immediately got on the payphone. Some of you don't know what a payphone is. Maybe I should have put a picture up here. Uh, we got on the payphone and, and we called some people who are waiting, who are praying. We wanted them to know our good news because you see, good news is for sharing. Well, I want to tell you, we've got the best news this world will ever hear. And we don't need to be silent about it. We need to share it. It's our responsibility and it is our privilege. And we're blessed to be able to pass on the good news that people can be forgiven and released from the burden of sin, be freed, have a new birth from above, and to come into a personal relationship with the living God. Well, if that's the case, why is it that so many Christians live in fear and they are reluctant to share the gospel? And how is it that Peter and John were so courageous on this occasion? Now, sometimes when we think about the apostles, we think, well, they're different from us. You know, these are the guys that had a halo around their head. Now, they didn't have any halos. They were cut out of the same piece of cloth that you and I were cut out of. They had the same frailties and challenges that we have, yet they stood boldly for Jesus Christ. And so today I want to investigate the origins of their courage that we can share in it today. If you are new, there in the bulletin, there's a note-taking outline. If you are online, there's a place for you to be able to print out that outline. And I want to give you four reasons why these brothers had such great confidence and courage. And you might want to jot them down and make them prayer requests this week. Maybe take the four points and each day pray for a different aspect. The first principle as to why they were courageous and how you can be courageous is you must be prepared for persecution. You must be prepared for persecution. These early believers were persecuted, and if you are obedient for Christ, you will as well. And if you're not prepared, instead of speaking up, you will fold up. We need to be prepared for opposition. Now, we never want to give the impression that the abundant life that Jesus brings is all thorns and no roses, but neither do we want to falsely portray the Christian life that it's all roses and no thorns. The thief comes only to kill and to destroy and to steal. But Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And of course, when you read the end of chapter 2, turn back a page, look at the last verse of chapter 2. Notice what these early believers were known for. They were known for praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So here, initially, there's a very positive response to the gospel. God was adding to their number day by day. But it's not always that way. 
Do you remember the Apostle Paul in writing 2 Corinthians? He gives us some very picturesque imagery to describe how people will respond when they hear the gospel. Let me read to you 2 Corinthians 2. He says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, to those who are being saved, an aroma from death to death. To the other, excuse me, to those who are lost, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. In other words, to those who are being saved, we're just a sweet savor, the message we preach. But to those who have opposition in their heart towards the truth, we smell to them, we stink to them, we are a stench. The message that you bring, and listen, it's more than just living it, it's speaking it. And some of us have never experienced the least amount of opposition Because when it comes to standing for truth, to say that homosexuality and transgenderism and drunkenness and using pot and drinking alcohol and all these other things are are wicked and displeasing to God, oh, you don't bother anyone. And some of us have never even attempted to share the plan of salvation. We leave it for the paid professional. But listen. If you will speak up for Christ, if you will live for Christ, you are going to see opposition. And that's what we are reminded of. Look at the first two verses as the setting is given to us. Uh, It's an example and a reminder that religion does not like to be threatened because religion has certain parameters, certain walls that they live within. Verse 1, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, if you've come out of a dead church, you don't need much explanation for what is happening in verses 1 and 2. You know firsthand that in a quasi-religious group of people, when you are born again, some of you were shared the gospel with someone who knew the Lord, you went back to your church where you never heard the gospel and you were excited to tell other people and all of a sudden you hit a brick wall and there's opposition. And instead of bringing good news and comfort, you bring great discomfort. That's what's happening here. Notice verse one, there's a number of people who are present. First, we're told there were priests. Priests, of course, were involved in the temple area doing sacrificial kind of work. But remember, at this point in the church, the curtain has been torn from top to bottom. The sacrificial system is over because all that it pictured was fulfilled in Jesus. So they're just going through these externals. And some of us came from churches like that that were ritualistic and symbolic with all the bells and smells, but no reality. Second, in addition to the priests, we learn that there was the captain of the temple guard. He was present. He's kind of the chief of police for the temple precincts. Now, remember, a huge stir had erupted. And these men were to keep order, especially in light of the fact that Rome didn't like it if there was disorder. And neither did they like it if their order was being violated. A man who had been paralyzed for 40 years from his mother's womb was miraculously healed. Look back at Acts 3 and verse 6. Notice, Peter said, 
to this man sitting at the gate who is paralyzed. I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Walk. Look at verse 7. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God, and all the people saw him walking and praising God. I mean, that quiet little church meeting got very, very loud. And Peter, of course, recognized that the purpose of miracles was to confirm the messenger, and he saw it as an opportunity to share the gospel. Jesus didn't heal everyone. He healed a select few, one to do the miracles that only the Messiah would do, to authenticate that he was indeed the promised one, the prophet that Moses wrote of, the promised Savior of the world, and he would use those miracles to preach the gospel. That's what his disciples are doing. Verse 4 indicates that the total number of males, it doesn't say people in your Bible, it says males, and by design, because it's the Greek word for a male in deference to a woman. 5,000 men, not including the women and the children. So the people are filled with joy, they're happy, they're praising the Lord, and the place is shaken up. And so the captain of the uh, temple precincts is uh, in charge to keep order, and he steps in, as we'll see. In addition, there's a third group. There's the Sadducees. Now, most of you know the distinction between a Pharisee, a separated one, who are more conservative in their doctrine, but still off in so many realms. And then there were the liberals, the Sadducees, who were Sadducee because, among other things, they didn't believe in the doctrine of the resurrection. They were very wealthy men. They were part of the aristocratic uh, class. They were the theological liberals. When Luke will later describe them in Acts 23 and in verse 8, he will say, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And of course, Jesus told us that the Sadducees neither understood the Scriptures nor the power of God. And Luke says they deny here the existence of good angels, they deny demon spirits, and the doctrine of the resurrection. And of course, they have a major problem on their hands. Because here's a man who has been supernaturally healed, and he's been healed in the name of the resurrected Lord. And so they're upset. By the way, remember, this is the same religious group of people. The council, the Sanhedrin, was principally made up of Sadducees that had some Pharisees, Paul being one of them, if you remember, from his testimony to the church at Philippi. But this was the same council that Jesus stood for before a few months earlier, where they condemned him on the night in which he was betrayed. And of course, they hated the supernatural. That's something they couldn't control. And do you remember when Lazarus was supernaturally raised from the dead, having been dead for four days? It was from that day forward that the council, that the religious hoi polloi sought to kill the Lord Jesus. Now, zooming in on verse 2, the Bible says these three groups, notice, were greatly disturbed. Why? Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection was central to the preaching of the gospel. You can preach the cross, and if you don't preach the resurrection, you are preaching a message that is not complete. You must believe in your heart that Jesus 
was raised from the dead in order to be saved. And it's his resurrection that is God's receipts, that, is in, that he is indeed Lord. And so this man who's supernaturally healed in the name of the resurrected Lord shook them all up. Verse 3, they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. So the captain of the guard has them put in jail until the next day when the council meets. So the captain, the priests, the Sadducees, they're threatened because their little orderly religion is threatened. And that's often what will happen. Notice verse 4, we're told, but many of those who had heard the message believed. And the number of the men, again, Arnair, men in deference to women, came to be about 5,000. There were so many people saved. They went from 3,000 men on the day of Pentecost now to 5,000 men, excluding women and children. So there's somewhere between 20 and 25,000. Some put it as high as 30,000 in this church here in Jerusalem. Now, don't miss the picture that Luke has described. Jerusalem is brimming with this news that a man who was lame from his mother's womb was now walking. It's a miracle, and thousands of people are coming to meet the risen Savior in a very personal, life-changing way. And in spite of the opposition, the gospel continues to go out. And so there's just an excitement. I think of Jeremiah when I read a text like this. In Jeremiah 20 and verse 9, the prophet said, Like a burning fire shut up in my bones, he said, And I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. When the apostle Paul was thrown into prison, he wrote the church at Philippi, and of course, the, the praetorian guard every four hours, Josephus tells us, would be changed. And so he'd have two men on either side of him to whom he was changed, and every four hours it would change. And, and Paul saw it as a good thing. He said his imprisonment had turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment and the cause of Christ has become well-known throughout the whole praetorian guard. There was a chain reaction, literally. Now, you can throw the messenger in prison, but you cannot imprison the message. The gates of hell shall not overpower it. And many times, God does his biggest work when the church is persecuted, even, quote-unquote, locked up. And dads and moms, grandparents, it is essential that you be preparing your children for persecution. Because unless the living God intervenes and sends a revival to this nation, and it appears that he is not because of all that is happening in the world, Israel is back in the land. That's the super prophetic event that God said he would do at the end of time. And so while no man knows the day or the hour, we're in that time frame that the Lord spoke of. And in that time frame, lawlessness will increase. Men's hearts will grow cold and there'll be increased persecution. Listen to these words, what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He said that in the last days, difficult times will come. Now, technically, the last days began on the day of Pentecost. Peter tells us that in Acts 2. But as you read 2 Timothy, he speaks of the last days as going from bad to worse. I believe we are now in the last of the last days, especially since the prophet said at the end of time, God would gather the Jews. Even 100 years ago, that was laughed at. And that's why, while today Israel has two key threats, they have militant Islam 
uh, the Muslims who threaten them with annihilation, but then we have the threat today of replacement theology that basically dismisses the role that God has for the people of Israel. You know, as the centuries went by, people reasoned, well, I guess maybe we misunderstood the Scripture, and 500 years went by, and 1,000 years went by, and 1,500 years went by, and Rome by then had taught from the time of Augustine that they were the new Israel. And so they were delegitimizing the people of Israel as God's tool that would bring back the Messiah. And yet here we have seen the Jews grow from 20,000 people in Israel, and the prophet asks, can a nation, can a people become a nation in one day? And apparently, and God documented it, the answer is yes. And now there are approximately 8 million Jews of the 12 and a half, 13 million Jews that are in the world. Not by accident. God said He would gather them from the four corners of the world. And there's two gatherings. There's the initial gathering for that time during the tribulation period, things that need to be in place, and then there's the final gathering at the end of the tribulation where He will send His angels and bring the remainder back there to the valley of decision. So when we see these super signs unfolding, we know we are in the last of the last days. Now it's foolish for you to try to uh, figure out or guess the hour because we don't know the hour, so don't waste your time trying to figure out the hour because God doesn't tell us the hour of the day. But He said, this day should not overtake you because you're not in darkness. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, slanderers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It's like a commentary in our day. Listen to what 1 Timothy 4 and verse 1 says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, now that is a term that is reserved unlike last days for the time frame at the end of the age before the Messiah lands on the Mount of Olives. The Spirit explicitly says in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. It's articular, meaning the body of truth we call the Bible, paying attention to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. That's what we have going on today, the teaching of demons. To say that a man can become a woman, that a woman can become a man, that a man can, quote-unquote, become pregnant, that homosexuality is fine, that getting drunk is just something that you should enjoy, that we ought to legalize pot, though all the sheriffs in all the counties across the nation formally opposed it because they saw it as a gateway drug, to call good evil and evil good. These are doctrines of demons. These are the days in which we are living. There is a tidal wave of sin that is coming upon our world in these last days. And because men hate the light, and they love the darkness, it means more and more opposition. Please join us tomorrow for part two as Pastor Carl continues his sermon on how to be a courageous witness. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program A Courageous Witness 021. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search of Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play store. 
Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures. Search the scriptures.